So Ian asked me to talk about the issue of abortion. And this is a topic that most people don't want to talk about. Um, this issue is one where there is a huge amount of emotion. There's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of anger, a lot of debate. And as a result of that, we don't talk about it. But I want to suggest to you that that is something of a mistake. Because in an audience of this size, you can almost be sure that a substantive number, a small proportion, will have been personally involved with it in some way. They will have either had an abortion, or they will have had children who have had an abortion, or they would have had someone who's considered an abortion, or they may have had a spouse or a partner <coughs> who was considered an abortion in a group this size, almost inevitably. And one of the things I think, problems I think we face in our culture, particularly in New Zealand today, is that if something gets really controversial and, and people get really upset about it, we say nothing. But the problem is there are questions we can't avoid. And with the abortion issue, it gets complicated because there are, if somebody is in a crisis pregnancy situation, there are lots of pastoral questions we will ask about how can we support this person, what can we do to help them, how can we show love to them, and what have you. And that's very important. But there's also... Another issue that's important, and that is the moral question as to, is this right or wrong? Is this something God would will or not will? And if we counsel people and approach people and ignore the moral dimension and don't ask that question, I think we're selling them short spiritually. So this morning, I'm going to talk not so much about the pastoral side of things. I'm going to talk about the moral issues. Um, and I know it's difficult to talk about that. Um, I can tell you as someone who has stood up at universities and spoken about issues like this, um, that it's never pleasant. You know, I've, I've spoken in contexts where there are people in the room who literally wanted to kill me. Um, but it's something that we have to get our heads around in our culture today, particularly how prevalent this is in our culture today. So without much further ado, I'm really going to do basically a couple of things this morning. First, I'm going to sketch a perspective on the abortion question. And this is a perspective I, did in my own, I studied in my own doctoral studies where I looked back into church history and asked, what have people before us who have been Christians said about this? And one thing I found when I studied at university was that often many of the issues we struggle with, we're not the first to struggle with. And there have been people before us who have asked the same questions. And it can be quite um, arrogant on our part to just assume we can answer these questions without asking what people before us have thought. Because they were smart people too. And although they weren't infallible, and neither are we, part of mature discipleship is getting feedback from others. And some of the others in our life are people who've come before us. Many of the things we learn today in church, you know, about God and the Trinity and, and various other things, we learn because other people before us figured some of these things out. So that's the first thing. I'm just going to sketch briefly the argument. I'm not going to go into great historical detail. And then I'm going to suggest there are three or four ways a person could respond to this, and I'm going to come back to those responses. So that's, if you like, the, the sort of agenda for this morning's talk. Okay, so without much further ado, let's look at the basic perspective. Okay. So when I looked in um, church history, I found that there was actually, amongst all segments of Christendom, a basic sort of take on this. You could find this in the early church fathers, from some of the earliest church fathers. In fact, the earliest writing outside the New Testament has this perspective. But you could also find it in Catholic theologians like Thomas Aquinas, you could find it in Martin Luther, you could find it in John Calvin. It was pretty much a, what I'm going to sketch is pretty much a consensus view of Christians till around the mid-20th century. And it basically was based on three points. 
The first was the idea was that there was a divine law or divine command which prohibited homicide. That is the killing of a human being without adequate justification. Right, or have put there without a good reason. Now, of course, the church had debates about whether it was right to kill in warfare under certain circumstances, such if you were defending your country and you were attacking, shooting at a, a killing a combatant. And they had debates about that or whether pacifism was true, and they had debates about issues like capital punishment. But by and large, in vast majority of circumstances, the consensus was that God prohibited the shedding of blood, prohibited killing. And you needed sort of special justifications for that. You know? Now, normally an audience like this, I don't have to defend that view. Um, that actually, it may surprise you, the idea that it's wrong to kill human beings is actually a fairly radical idea that Christianity brought into um, the world. In ancient Greece and ancient Rome, it was quite common to leave newborn babies to die on the side of the road. Right? They didn't have the, the view that it was wrong to kill human beings per se. Um, that was a unique thing. But in an audience like this, I generally don't have to defend this. So I'm not going to get into great detail on this particular point. The second thing that I found that people tended to think was that a fetus was a human being. Right. So it was wrong to kill a human being without a good reason, and a fetus was a human being. And then the third one was that in the case of, you know, in the case of abortion, or at least in the vast majority of cases, those kind of good reasons that you need for killing a human being weren't forthcoming. The standard reasons or the standard circumstances people um, attempted to perform abortions in or attempted to justify them weren't the kinds of reasons that were good enough to allow killing of a human being. And this was widely held. This was, like I said, it was widely held by lots of different Christian um, teachers right back to the first century. And I think this encapsulates the heart of the moral issues in this discussion. Notice, let's go back here. Yeah. <laughs> right. So notice what these three things. If each one of these are true, then the conclusion inevitably follows as a matter of logic that abortion is wrong in vast majority of circumstances. Right? If it's true that it's wrong to kill a human being without a good reason, and it's true that a fetus is a human being, and it's also true that in the vast majority of cases, the killing of a fetus isn't done in the sort of situation where there's a good reason, then it follows that abortion is wrong in the vast majority of cases. That's just a matter of logic. It follows from those three points as a matter of logic. Presumably, you will see that. What that means is that you can't reject this position unless you reject one, two, or three. You have to reject one of those three assumptions. If you don't reject one of those three assumptions, it follows as a matter of logic that in vast majority of cases, abortion is wrong. Okay? So that it comes down to, therefore, whether one of those three assumptions is mistaken. And this is important because one of the most common, I think the most common way of responding to this that I've found in the culture is what I call avoidance tactics. So when you discuss this, or you talk about this, or this comes up, the most common response you'll see, particularly in the media, is avoiding the issue. So what often happens is it gets into a discussion about whether the person who is putting forward this viewpoint is a good person. And so you'll hear appeals to caricatures about anti-choice fanatics, or feminists, or pro-life terrorists, or misogynist people, or something like this. It becomes a discussion of who can we defame the best? Right. Who can we insult the best? Right. But of course, simply insulting people on either side of a discussion or saying that people on either side of the discussion are bad or attacking their character doesn't actually address any of these three points. Right. A similar thing happens when people 
often they'll describe the issue in pejorative terms. So they'll put forward the view they agree with, and they'll just use language in a particular way. So they'll, they'll use negative language or bad language to talk about one side and positive language to talk about another. But again, this avoids the issue. And to see this, suppose that everything you said about a person on the other side was true. Suppose it's true the person is a really horrible person. Still doesn't change the fact that one of these three issues are true or false, right? If I'm a really, really horrible person, that won't change whether a fetus is a human being or not. That's a fact about the human being, about the fetus, right? If I'm a really horrible person, it won't change whether it's wrong to kill human beings or not. Right? And if I'm a really horrible person, it won't change the question about whether the reasons given are good or bad. It'll just say I'm a horrible person. Right? It changes the subject. Okay? And so this is a point that, that's often missed, is a good moral argument for or against a position does not cease to be a good or a bad argument simply because the person who expresses it has certain character flaws. And this is something we need to bear in mind in our culture because this is a common way our culture tries to avoid discussions of issues. And we need to, as Christians, be better than that. We need to be people who are willing to face truth and think carefully and respond in truth and love and rise above the garbage that we see in our culture when people try and discuss anything. Okay. Similarly, often here people will chant certain slogans. So one that often comes up is people will say, well, look, you can't force your morality onto others. You know, you can't do this. Whatever your opinion is, you can't impose your morality onto others. And I just think the slogan is just wrong. Those who cite the slogan, I think, face a dilemma. When you claim you can't force your morality onto others, either this applies to moral principles prohibiting homicide or it doesn't. Okay? Now, if it doesn't include the principle of homicide, then, of course, my, by me making this argument, I'm not imposing my morality onto you. I'm talking about homicide, and that's something that you've said doesn't fall under the slogan. Right? On the other hand, if your claim is that, well, even your moral beliefs about homicide you can't impose onto others, well, then we shouldn't have laws against murder, and we shouldn't have laws against manslaughter, and we shouldn't have laws against drunk driving, and we shouldn't have laws against all these things, because all these things make moral judgments about homicide and impose them on the population. That's what laws do. So, Again, the question comes down, if, if, if these three claims are right, are all true, you can't get around it by saying, don't impose your morality into others. If killing a fetus is a form of homicide, if it's the killing of a human being without justification, then it's the kind of thing that we take very seriously morally and we don't think people are free to just sort of choose to do or not do. It's the kind of thing that we think is really, really morally serious. So I don't think you can avoid the issue by character attacks. I don't think you can avoid the issue by sort of trying to suggest that, you know, you keep your views private to you and other people keep their views private to them and so on. It's, it's something we have to grasp the nettle by. We have to grasp it by the horns and deal with it. So then we have to look at really at these sort of, at whether these three claims are true. Okay. So the first one I want to look at is this, is this last one. Three, right? In the, in the majority, in the vast majority of cases, there's no good reasons. Now, of course, in the literature, various people have tried to put forward what they think are good reasons for why abortion is, okay, is morally acceptable, why there are good reasons for doing this, and so it's, it's okay. And you can, really broad, you can really group these sort of positions into two broad categories. The first, the first looks at rights, and it appeals to people's rights. 
And the second looks at sort of consequences and says, well, let's look at the consequences of these actions. You know, I could talk more about the, the, these categories because I think they actually reflect um, quite deeply the way most people in our culture think about morality at a deep level. But I don't have time to get into that today, but if you want to ask me about that, I can do it but, and, um, afterwards. But these are the two sort of ways people approach them. And what I'm going to say about these responses, these attempts to give good reasons for abortion, is I'm going to say, basically, the basic point I'm going to make is that I think they only succeed if you assume the fetus is not a human being. So in other words, they will only establish the la they'll only challenge the last claim that I made if they've already challenged the earlier one about a fetus being a human being, right? The typical arguments that are given, they only work if you assume a fetus is not a human being. And I'll show you this with a couple of examples. So the first one is a rights-based argument. It's basically, it's generally asserted, and this is from a, an ethicist called Baruch Brody, who wrote a, a good book on this. It says, he says, it's frequently asserted that a woman ought to be in control of what happens in her body to the greatest extent possible. And she ought to use her body in ways she wants to and refrain from using it in ways she doesn't want to. Okay, so this is the claim, right? But I just want to suggest to you, and this might get me into trouble, that this claim is just false. Right? Women and men do not have a right to do whatever you like with your body. There is no such right. right? Morality is all about asking what things you should and should not do with your body. That's what morality does. Morality regulates our actions. Actions are things we perform with our body. All right. We cannot use our bodies to set fires to other people's property. We can't use our bodies to rape other people. We can't use our bodies to steal. We can't use our bodies to commit homicide. The right to do as we please is limited by the morality of our actions. That's what morality does. So whether abortion falls into a category of an action we are free to do or free not to do depends on whether or not it's homicide in the first place. If it's homicide, it doesn't fall into the category of actions we're free to do. So this sort of argument basically assumes from the outset what it's trying to establish. Right? It assumes that abortion is not a form of homicide. Now, some, some might claim that I'm being a bit uncharitable here. This isn't what, what the person's really saying. What, is that suggest what they're suggesting is that you have a right to control what happens inside your own body. I have a right to control what happens to my body, and you have a right to control what happens to yours. Hence, provided the decision I make does not involve me using your body in a way you don't consent to, and I don't, and doesn't involve, you know, then, then you can do it, right? You know, so provided the decision I make does not involve me using your body in a way you do not consent to, then I have a right to do it. But notice if you make this claim, implicit in your argument is the idea that a fetus, at least until born, is part of a woman's body. Right? If the claim is, well, I can do whatever I like with my body, providing I don't infringe upon anyone else's, the assumption is, is that a fetus is part of a woman's body. But why should anyone accept that claim? Why should we accept that a fetus is part of a woman's body? Well, the usual reason given is that because a fetus exists inside a woman and is dependent upon her for her survival, so therefore it is part of her body. But again, when I think about this, this just seems to me to be mistaken. That's what's being said here. The idea is that if a fetus is inside, if something is inside a person, or something is inside something and dependent upon it, it's part of it. This is the idea.
So despite us, people repeating this over and over again, I want to suggest to you this is wrong. Imagine a person who lives inside an ocean liner for several months while on a cruise ship in the Atlantic. This person lives inside the ocean liner. They can't survive independently of the ocean liner. It doesn't follow that part of the boat. Okay. And we can think of numerous other examples. For example, a premature infant in an incubator isn't part of the incubator, even though it's inside the incubator and dependent on the incubator for life. Right? So the fact that something is inside something else and depends upon something else doesn't mean it's part of it. Right? And in fact, it's actually just false, both scientifically and for various reasons, to say that a fetus is part of a mother's body. A fetus has a separate genetic code, it has its own organs, it has its own bodily system. Um, a humorous way you can make this point is to note that if a woman has a male fetus inside of her, then if the fetus was part of her body, that would follow the woman had two heads, a vagina and a penis. And she'd have four arms and four legs. Right? And it's simply false. A fetus is not part of a woman's body. It is a separate living organism inside and dependent on a woman's body. So the question can't be avoided. We have to ask the question, is this thing a human being? And, that's, and until we've asked that question, we can't, ask, we can't talk about a woman having a right to do what she likes with it and what have you, until we've asked that question. So that's rights-based arguments. But then there's a, another line of response people often raise, and this is the line of response that appeals to consequences. And perhaps the most common version of this is what's called the backstreet abortion argument. So I had a discussion with a, a woman called Zoe During, who was a member of the Rationalist Humanist Society many years ago on this, and this is what she said in an article she wrote. She said, the majority of women, poor women, have had to go to backstreet practitioners to swallow dubious potions or use knitting needles on themselves. Attempting illegal abortion by such means has always been dreadful and dangerous and greatly increased maternal mortality. Right, so this is the, the, the argument, right? So the idea here is that if you accept a rule that prohibits abortion, that means people will go out and have abortions in secret. And in doing that, this will result in women dying. This is the argument, right? So rules against abortion, laws against abortion, they cause women to die. And therefore, they're, they're not good laws. This is the argument. Well, again, I'm going to suggest to you that this argument only works if you assume a fetus is not a human being. Because if you don't make this assumption, then what this argument is essentially saying is that we should kill several thousand fetuses every year because if we don't, several hundred women will die. That's true to the statistics, by the way. That's why I use those figures. So what it's saying, we should kill this group of people. Why? Well, because if we don't kill them, people will die. But hang on, doesn't killing people result in people dying? You're trying to avoid the loss of life, so you go out and engage in the loss of life? The argument doesn't make any sense unless you assume a fetus is not a human being. Okay. And typical other arguments that appeal to consequences fail for a similar reason. So we're often given huge numbers of good consequences that are supposed to follow from abortion. So we're told that abortion prevents unwanted children. So abortion prevents unwanted children, right, who are likely to be poor, who are likely to be abused, who are likely to engage in crime. I don't know if you know, there was a few years ago, there was a study done in, um, about the dramatic 
crime rate drops in New York. And the, the conventional wisdom of the time was that this had been due to the sort of zero tolerance policy that had been brought in by Mayor Giuliani. And Mayor Giuliani had brought in this famous policy where, called broken windows, and the idea was that instead of putting police resources on serious crimes and leaving minor crimes unpunished, he focused all the police resources on minor crimes. And the idea was that if you publish, punish the minor crimes, you get the criminals before they become major criminals. The idea was that people who commit major crimes generally have a string of previous convictions for minor crimes. And so he implemented this policy and the crime rates in New York dropped dramatically. So I remember when I was growing up, New York was always this example you used of this terrible crime-ridden city. And then, you know, several decades later, the crime rates dropped. Well, there was a study that suggested that in actual fact, no, the crime rate drops was due to abortion. Because a generation earlier, New York had brought in very liberal abortion laws. And so what this had done is it had meant that people from the demographic that were likely to commit crimes hadn't been born. This was the argument, right? So it's often, it's one of the reasons given is that it lowers crime rates. It's said to be a solution to overpopulation. It's said to be a way of preventing parents from having to have the difficulty of bringing up a disabled child. Um, just as a, a sort of disclosure here, people, when I, when I say this, often say to me things like, well, you don't know what it's like to bring up a disabled child. I do, I have two children with autism. Um, it prevents adult and teenage women from falling into economic hardship and stress. It enables people to complete their education and their careers without the hindrance of child rearing. And all these kinds of things, right? These are all reasons people say, well, look, look at all these good reasons, right? Abortion does all these things. It has all these positive social consequences. The problem is, is that everything here is also true of the practice of infanticide. Okay, infanticide is the practice where you kill newborn infants at birth. If, if a society practices infanticide like, say, ancient Greek and Roman society does, then it will prevent unwanted children. Right? If a society pr um, practices infanticide, presumably it will have the same effects on poverty as abortion has, right? The idea of, abor of abortion so preventing poverty is that, well, these children won't grow up to happy mouths you have to feed. You know, if you have these children, if the children don't grow up and they don't demand resources of you, you won't be poor. Well, that's the children of infanticide too. Infanticide would prevent crime, right? If aborting this particular demographic lowers the crime rate, so will performing infanticide against that same demographic. It will also lower the crime rate, you know? The gap between birth and a few years after birth is not the time people commit crimes. Okay? Well, infanticide will prevent overpopulation, obviously. Um, infanticide would prevent parents having to look after disabled children. You know, if, 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 if a child is subject to infanticide shortly after birth, parents aren't going to have to bring it up. All right? um, infanticide will prevent economic hardship and stress, the difficulties of parenthood and what have you. Presumably, if you put your child to death shortly after birth, you know, you won't have the stress of having to bring it up after that. Okay? Infanticide enables women to complete their education and pursue their careers. Right? in exactly the same way as abortion does. The point is, is that each of these consequences would follow equally well from the practice of infanticide. And we don't support infanticide. Why not? Because it's killing a human being. Right? So the point is, is that if you think abortion is a human being, 
none of these consequences matter. When it comes to killing a human being, we don't say, well, look, you can kill human beings to prevent unwanted children. You can kill human beings to prevent poverty. You can kill human beings to prevent crime. You can kill human beings to prevent overpopulation. You can kill human beings to prevent um, them growing up disabled. You can kill human beings to prevent economic hardship. You can kill human beings to advance your career and go to education and so on. We don't say that. We don't think that. We don't think these consequences justify killing people. So if a fetus is a human being, these consequences can't justify abortion. Right. Now, I'm not saying that abortion can never be justified. There are cases where I think we're allowed to kill human beings. We can kill human beings in self-defense, for example. And so there can be cases where a fetus is, a, you know, we're having a pregnancy, going through the pregnancy, causes a severe threat to the woman's life, and she will literally die if she gives birth. There are difficult cases like that. And I'm willing to concede that in difficult cases like that, you know, maybe certain kinds of rape cases. There are certain cases like that where, you know, um, a person might be justified in performing an abortion. But these cases are extremely rare. About 0.5% of all abortions performed in New Zealand, for example, fall under this category. So the vast majority of cases in which abortion is performed are for reasons like this. So if you're going to defend the sort of practice of abortion as exists in our society today, you can't appeal to cases that only happen in 0.5% of a such time. You have to appeal to these kinds of cases. And these kinds of cases can only plausibly justify abortion if the fetus is not a human being. Right? So if you look back at the, the sort of basic points we were making before, so I said it was wrong to kill a human being without good reason, the fetus is a human being, in the case of abortion, at least in the majority of cases, there is no good reason for it. We've seen that you can't really contest three, the last one, unless you contest two. Right? The kinds of cases used to justify abortion only, are only good reasons if two is false. So the issue then comes down to whether two is correct. Now, the first thing I want to notice about this is that the claim that a fetus is a human being actually is quite plausible, given what we know about fetuses. Right? I'll give you an example of how this would work in everyday life. Consider this. A hunter is in the woods, and he notices some rustling in the bushes up ahead. Looking through the scope of his rifle, he sees a six-foot-high bipedal being with brown hair, blue eyes, wearing a red and black swan dry. Right? What does he do? Well, if he's responsible, he refrains from shooting. Why? Well, because he makes the sensible and reasonable judgment that... What he sees through his scope looks like a human being. And because it looks like a human being, he's not going to pull the trigger. Right? And this is the basis on which he makes his judgment. He looks at his target and he says, wow, that looks like a human being. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull the trigger. Now, if you applied this general common sense idea to a fetus, what's interesting is there is a general consensus that the fetus is recognizably human after six weeks and certainly after eight. And this is a being that is genetically human, that has the same organ structure of a human being, it's physiologically human. Um, very early on in the pregnancy, it looks like a human being. It's something human beings give birth to. It's something that grows up to be an adult human being. Seems on the face of it, prima facie at least, quite plausible to suggest that this is a human being. Right? 
So unless we have some really good reasons for thinking otherwise, it seems to me we should accept this. Why wouldn't we? And so what happens is in the literature, people generally give four sort of reasons why they think that a fetus is not a human being. And I've put them up on the um, PowerPoint there. They'll say it's not viable. They say it's not sentient, which I'll explain them what that means in a minute. It's not born or it's not a person. So let's look at the first of these. The first of these is viability. So a common argument suggests that a fetus is not human because it is not viable. So a author, Susan Sherwin, writes this. She says that, if, that killing a fetus differs from killing a newborn infant because the fetus is wholly dependent on her mother's unique contribution to its maintenance, while a newborn infant is physically separate, though still in need of a lot of care. It should be on the next point if you want to um, flick forward to it. Yeah, so that's the thing there. I'll read it again. A fetus is wholly dependent on her mother's unique contribution to its maintenance, while a newborn is physically, sep while a newborn is physically separate, though still in need of care. So the idea here is that a fetus is different from a newborn infant because it depends on the woman for its survival and care. Right? So I want to say a few things about this. Firstly, the idea that a fetus cannot survive independently of its mother doesn't seem to entail it's not a human being. And one problem with saying this is that we know that fetal viability is contingent on the medical technology of a given culture. A fetus that is not viable in Chad will be viable in a hospital in Los Angeles because of the different technology of the two places. And so one of the um, problems with this kind of view is it suggests that, suggests that if a, a pregnant woman is in Los Angeles and gets on a plane and flies to Chad... She has a human being in her womb when she leaves. When she arrives in Chad, it ceases to be a human being, and then it becomes a human being when she gets on the plane and flies back. And that just seems absurd. Surely the, the, the humanity of the fetus doesn't depend on the technology of the culture around it. Right? Um, another issue that comes up related to this is that viability has been pushed um, further and further back as medical technology has advanced. So some of the laws that were passed say 20, 30 years ago, have viability actually at a place now that is wrong because we can now preserve fetuses earlier than that. Right? Another problem with this idea of viability is it suggests that cases, you have cases like conjoined twins. You know, you've got cases where conjoined twins where they can't live independently of each other, yet surely they're human. We don't think that conjoined twins are not human because they can't live independently of another human being. So we're already familiar with the fact that there are cases where human beings exist and they can't live independently of other people. And we don't think that denies the humanity. Right. And another problem here is that the property that's being pointed to here, dependence, is not something that actually ends at birth. You know, she talks about this. She talks about the unique contribution to its maintenance while a newborn is physically separate. It's still in need of care. A born baby is totally dependent on its mother, only instead of being fed and sheltered by the mother's internal processes, it is fed and sheltered by her behavior. But why does that make a difference? Why does the fact you're dependent on someone's behavior as opposed to your internal processes make you human or not human? A newborn baby is totally dependent on its mother. If its mother happens to be born in an isolated area where there are no lactating women, you know, no other lactating woman or no means of bottle feeding, then it will be dependent upon her body for its existence. Right? 
And we can think of all kinds of cases where people, where human beings, get in situations where they depend upon other people for their existence. We know of cases where people end up on temporary life support systems and they require someone else to keep them alive for a period of time. We know of situations where a hiker breaks his leg in the woods and it's a week's walk from the road and he will die if his companions don't bring help and so on. And so people have to sit there and feed him and look after him and what have you till someone comes along. So dependence is not a ground for saying someone is not a human being. And just think of what would happen if we accepted that principle, that as soon as you're dependent upon someone else for your existence and your care, you're not human. I think that's actually quite an appalling principle. Because of these problems, the more common response is to ground humanity in what's called sentience. Now, sentience, I mentioned this before, this is the idea that a being's brain has developed to the point where it can perceive pleasure and pain. So the idea is that your brain develops, and at a certain point in human development, um, the fetus gains its ability to feel pleasure or pain. Now, exactly when this happens is a matter of dispute, but sort of the, 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 the sort of latest that it happens is around 24 weeks. Some people think it happens earlier. But the idea is that until this happens, you don't have a human being on the scene. Now, despite the, the pervasiveness of this, again, I'm gonna, I think there's several problems of it. Well, for starters, it doesn't seem that the lack of sentience of a, human be- of a creature makes it not human. For example, we continue to be human when we're asleep, even though we're unconscious. Right? And... If a doctor puts us under an anesthetic and we're on the operating table, we will feel no pain at all and no pleasure at all. We'll be completely unconscious. But we wouldn't want to say that if the doctor then did something else, it wouldn't be homicide. Right? We think we can continue to be human beings even when we're um, unconscious. But even if you set all these problems aside, anyone who tries to ground the humanity of the fetus in what and its brain development, the kind of brain development the fetus has, faces a very serious dilemma. Any appeal to what a brain can do at various stages of development will have to appeal to what the brain can already do or what it has the potential to do in the future. And either, whichever option you take, you end up with absurd consequences. And this is because it's actually a fact that by any plausible measure, dogs, cats, cows, pigs, chickens, and ducks are more intellectually developed than a newborn infant. Human beings um, are in some ways unique amongst other animals in that we give birth to very dependent creatures. We have very big brains. And so we give birth to children when their brain is very, very underdeveloped. And they require our care and they require constant dependence to develop their brains in that area. So newborn infants after birth have a more primitive psychology than an than an adult cow does at that point in time, right? Of course, in the future, it will develop far more sophisticated psychological capacities than a cow has. But that's the problem. If, you, if you're grounded on what the being can do right now, then you, it's pretty hard to make any principled reason for saying why newborn infants are human. On the other hand, if you're grounded on what, well, Yes, the the infant doesn't have this kind of ability now, but in the future it will do. Then the problem is, is now that's true of the fetus, right? The fetus will in the future 
develop very sophisticated intellectual abilities. Right? And so it's proved to be extremely difficult in the literature to come up with a principled um, reason for saying, oh, look, this being lacks a certain level of consciousness, it's not human, which doesn't commit you to infanticide, or isn't just totally arbitrary. And I don't have time to review the literature here, but this is actually a, a, a very, very common problem. Okay. So a third position is to not base it on the sort of ability to feel pleasure and pain is to just punt straight to birth. So the idea is people will sometimes say, well, look, a fetus is different from an infant because, a fetus, because an infant has been born. Um, but this problem just seems totally ad hoc. What it means is that a premature 30-week infant in a hospital intensive care unit would be a human being, while a 40-week fetus in utero would not be. You know, we have a situation where there are premature infants in hospitals that are born prematurely. And we've got women who are gestating with fetuses in their womb that are more developed than those infants in the premature hospitals. And it seems totally bizarre to say, well, look, the one in the premature infancy unit, it's a human being because it's come out of the woman and it's born. And the one inside the woman, it's not a human being, even though you're dealing with physiologically the exact same kind of organism. And in fact, the one you're not seeing as human is more developed and more advanced. And one of the problems with this kind of view is it leads to what some ethicists have called the horror story. And the horror story is the situation where you end up with doctors fighting in one hospital ward to keep alive an infant in an intensive care unit in an incubator and then in another hospital ward performing abortions on fetuses that are just as advanced, if not more so. And it's hard to see anything there but self-deception, I think. So birth doesn't seem to be the right place to draw the line. And these problems are actually well known in the literature. You won't hear this in the, in the popular media debate, but these, these problems are well known in the literature. So final sort of line that's often drawn is what's called personhood. And the idea here is to draw a distinction between human beings and persons. And a person is defined as something like a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and consider itself as a self, the same thinking being in different times and places, right? That's a mouthful, right? The basic idea here is that persons are beings that can think rationally and they have what is called self-awareness. And self-awareness is, is not just the awareness of other people and other things, but the awareness that I exist and I will continue to exist in the future. Okay? And this is something only higher mammals, um, like human beings, have the ability to do. Right? Um, and so the idea is that a fetus hasn't developed these capacities yet. It hasn't developed the ability to think, to reason, to reflect, and to realize that it exists and will continue to exist in the future. This is the idea. The problem is, with this account, is that newborns can't do this either. In a definitive study on the issue, a guy called Michael Tooley, who incidentally was arguing in favor of abortion, compiled all the sort of physiological and data about brain studies and what have you, and he demonstrated quite conclusively that infants are not persons in this sense until sometime after birth. Remember I mentioned that human beings, when they give birth, infants at the point of birth are actually quite underdeveloped psychologically. You think about it, 
newborn infants need to be taught to talk. You know, they can barely at birth do anything. Okay? They, they, they're psychologically very primitive at that point of development. And so an adult cow, mature cow, is actually more self-awareness and more ability to reason and think and rationalize than a newborn infant does. So if, if the idea is that fetuses, they lack self-awareness, and so therefore they're not people, then you're going to have to say the same thing about infants. Of course, you can avoid this by saying, well, look, it's not the actual possession of self-awareness that matters, it's the potential awareness, possession of it. But then the problem is now fetuses are also potential self-aware rational beings. Hmm? So I've probably taken you through quite a lot in a short period of time, but I, I hope you see the point here. The basic, there's the basic three points I started off with, and that is, you know, that you accept a moral principle that it's wrong to kill human beings, except there's, unless there's a good reason, right? That there's a, a fetus is a human being, and in the case of abortion, at least in vast majority of circumstances, there is no good reason for it. Now, what I've sort of argued with you is that you can't accept these three claims without concluding that abortion is wrong in most circumstances. And these are three claims that Christians historically have pretty much always defended. And when we looked at three, I suggested that when you look at the case people make for three, but maybe the case people make against three, they only work if you assume fetus is not a human being. And then I looked at that question and I pointed out that when you look at the reasons people give for saying a fetus is not a human being, they don't stack up. It becomes very, very difficult to make a principled claim that a fetus is not human and an infant is. And you end up with all kinds of just ad hoc, arbitrary, very strange distinctions being made when you do. So as unpopular as what I have to say may be, my conclusion is that our Christian forebearers were not wrong. Um, our Christian forebears saw something about this issue that our culture misses. And as a result, if we are to be faithful to God, we have to be countercultural in this. And we have to reject this as a solution to certain kinds of problems. And so Christians, I think, are called to be a community. One part of being a Christian is called to be a community that reflects Christ, who gave his life for the sake and the good of others. And so we have to reject the idea that you can solve really difficult social problems by shedding innocent blood. And we have to be more creative in solving these problems. So when people are in crisis pregnancies and the, the man has walked away and they're stressing out and they're freaking out, we need to be a community that provides support and help and love. And part of that is speaking the truth and saying, shedding innocent blood is not the way to solve this problem. And then finding a way where we can give love and care to that person which is another alternative. So I'll pray, and um, then you can abuse me about what I said afterwards. Okay. Um, Father, um, I thank you for the opportunity to speak here. I ask that this um, audience will mull over what I have said, and that you will guide us in truth, Lord. If I have been mistaken or made errors, let people see them. Guide us, Lord, and help us to be people who affirm um, your commandments, that you do not shed innocent blood, Help us to be a community that renounces that. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Flynn. Um, so can you stand here as we finish up the last one?